Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to the women's podcast. Uh, there's blue skies out there again. And I'm sorry for my regular weather reports, but it does make such a difference, doesn't it? And I hope you are getting out and enjoying it. And maybe you're listening right now on a walk or a run or a cycle. We all need some light and some sunshine, I think. And speaking of light, some light was shone last night, Wednesday on the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes when one of the Commission members, Professor Mary Daly, spoke at an event organised by Oxford University. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, including one very important and moving contribution from a woman who was born in the Tume Mother and Baby Home and later given up for adoption, Teresa O'Sullivan. I have a pain in my heart right now and I have to be very very sensitive to every survivor that's listening here this morning and that has listened and heard about what happened yesterday. Now on Wednesday it was the first time we'd heard publicly from one of the three-person commission and Professor Mary Daly spoke at Oxford University about the methodology of the report. Now we know that some survivors and families have raised concerns that accounts of evidence that they gave to the confidential committee, which was separate to the commission's final report, contained errors and misrepresentations. Professor Daly and the other members of the commission had previously declined to come before the Oireachtas Committee. But yesterday, as I said, she joined an online event organised by Oxford University and discussed several issues which um, have raised more questions and go some way to explaining why the evidence given by over 500 survivors as part of the confidential part of the inquiry did not make it into the final report. And there's been plenty of reaction coming in about uh, Professor Daly's contribution to Oxford University. This is what Leo Varadkar had to say about it in the Dole this morning. Um, and I think it is now necessary uh, for the Commission members uh, to come before an Oireachtas committee as they've been asked to do. Uh, they should do without delay uh, and allow us as Oireachtas members um, to hear from them uh, why they came to the findings they did and to answer any appropriate questions and to do so in a non-adversarial way. And that's what should happen now. And I think as well they should also have a similar engagement with the survivors. It was done before for previous reports of this nature. Um, uh, the Ryan report, Scalia report, um, McAleese report, maybe not the same legal structure, but the same um, essential process was followed, that people who made a report, who were commissioned to make a report by these Oireachtas, were willing to explain that report to the Oireachtas uh, and to the people who were subject to that report, uh, the survivors and those involved. Uh, and given that this academic symposium happened the other day, I can see no excuse now, uh, and certainly no valid reason, uh, for the Commission members not to be willing to do that and to do that without delay. To discuss all of this, we have two people who were there at the meeting, Irish Times political correspondent Jennifer Bray and Maeve O'Rourke, human rights lawyer and founder of the Clan Project. And uh, Maeve is a lecturer in NUI Galway. They were joined by mother and baby home survivor Teresa O'Sullivan, who you heard from there a little earlier I began by asking Jennifer Bray to give us the context for this latest twist in a story that has been going on for decades. So, Jen, can you tell us about uh, the context for this meeting and also what was said at it? Yeah, so uh, as we know, um, the Mother and Baby Homes Commission report, the final report, came out earlier this year. Um, there was a long wait for that report. Many survivors, many of their family members very eager to see what would be in it and hoping, I suppose, for some kind of... Um, I suppose, some kind of um, resolution to, to an issue that has been, I suppose, unaddressed for so long. And we know, um, and you've covered this before, when the, the final report came out, obviously there was a lot of controversy in relation to how it was worded, in relation to its findings, in relation to how it was constructed, and even in relation to issues such as um, the, the testimony that women gave, the, the um, audio files of those being deleted and being unrecoverable. 
uh, although I do believe they are now recovered. Um, and that played out all through um, all through the year. So I think what happened after the report came out was was basically that women and their families and politicians indeed um, had many questions, many outstanding questions left after the, the report was published and after there were the various debates in, in the Dáil and in the Oireachtas. Unfortunately, none of those questions could be answered because the, the commission members in the were three um, declined invitations to appear before the Oireachtas committee, um, an invitation which I believe will now be re-extended. But, you know, the whole thing was that there were all of these questions and if these commissioners or one of the commissioners came before the committee, the Oireachtas committee, then they could get to the bottom of um, and maybe get into the details of it. That didn't happen. Um, and what we actually found this week was that um, one of the members of the commission, Professor Mary Daly, um, had been scheduled and did appear yesterday um, before an online event which was held um, by the Oxford University. So I think it was a closed event. Um, now, you could register and some people did manage to register. Like a couple of journalists got in. I got in. I know uh, Maeve was there. I think Teresa was there. Um, and, you know, it was I think it was closed off after around 100 people had had registered um, but just to say, I think the expectation from Professor Mary Daly was that she would be speaking amongst her peers. This wasn't supposed to be, you know, a Q&A press conference or um, a venue by which she would address concerns raised by survivors. So the important thing as well to note is that it was the first time, actually, that we've heard from um, one of the one of the commissioners and one of the members of, the, of this committee. And at the very beginning, she did say that she had turned down many, uh, many invitations to appear before other other societies, and but that she said she was precluded from doing so before. I presume this is because the work of the commission was ongoing, but obviously now that has been dissolved. So you would wonder what stopped any of the commission members appearing before an Oireachtas committee after that stage. Um, so, you know, it was... We kind of got straight into it basically yesterday on on the meeting in that she didn't really hold back when she was talking about some of the uh, legal threats, some of the what she called heavy pushback that the commission had received from religious orders. You know, she was talking about how they had to be ultra careful. Um, and then she kind of got to the, I suppose, the part about the criticism um, implicitly when she said that if the report reads as legalistic, if it doesn't include some evidence that people gave to the confidential inquiry, now because we know there was the inquisitorial part of the inquiry and the confidential committee, um, she said if there is some evidence that people gave to the confidential inquiry, there is a reason why that's not there. So she was saying the reason why anything in the main report, she said, had to meet robust legal standards of evidence. She said if they wrote anything that was averse or critical about an individual or entity or an institution, they had to do a draft report, send the draft report with those critical observations, uh, with the documentation they used to base that. Then whoever, you know, it was relevant to would have a chance to respond and come back. So the examples she gave were, she said basically this happened with a vengeance, were her words actually. And she said this happened with the two mother and baby home. Uh, she said that the, the she, she spoke about the burial report and I know you've covered this as well before. And she said she she would have thought it was fairly conclusive what they had found, but they got pushed back. And she said Tume had this extraordinary uh, assertion that the burial tanks were purpose-built burial vaults. And she said the kind of thing you'd see in continental Europe or used by royal and other families, uh, which now she said the idea that a, a, you know, a local authority would have that kind of money basically uh, didn't hold any water. So she kind of went through all a, a bit of that before we got into... Um, some of the issues, the, the, the specific issues that campaigners, survivors, politicians um, have. And, and, you know, it was interesting really when we got into the detail of it. Uh, there was one particular quote that she gave or thing that she said that stuck with me. Um, you know, she was actually talking about how when it came to the testimony that all these women gave to that confidential committee, that a lot of it just wasn't used or wasn't considered relevant to the main body of of, of the work. Um, like she said before, her argument was that, you know, they need to be cross-examined and it would need to meet a certain legal threshold, etc. But the more telling line I thought was when she said, and I will actually quote this word for word to be fair, she said, first of all, it would have taken a lot of additional time it would have taken hundreds of hours of cross-checking, rereading against the other evidence available from registers and so on. Then maybe interrogation and then maybe working out how to integrate the two. Um, and I know from being watching the reaction of the other people who were at that event, online event yesterday, 
that people were very surprised. And you could see from the comments, actually, that were being put in the Q&A section um, of the Zoom. You know yourself when you're on the Zoom, you can type in questions if, you, if, you, if you're if you muted, um, that people were very surprised by this. And from what I could see, there was a lot of hurt over that. And people pointing out that the commission, I think, had 11 million euro left over and that if it's not an issue of money um, and that it certainly shouldn't be an issue of time, especially when this thing has been delayed uh, for so long. Um, so they were kind of the, the the main points. You know, she did also have, I suppose, very strong words for the state of, well, the state of state archives, the state of local authority archives, which she described as an utter disgrace and said the state needs to basically get its house in order in relation to that. And I'm sure there's plenty of people who wouldn't disagree with her um, on, on that. But... They were sort of the main points of what I took away from it. Um, and I think now that she's appeared, said these things, um, I suppose left so many more questions unanswered. Now, you would have to question whether the decision and the position not to appear before the Oireachtas Committee is feasible or sustainable. Yeah. And just before I move on to Maeve O'Rourke, Jen, did she seem, um, I'm, I'm just curious because I wasn't there, did she seem defensive in any way or kind of, because I imagine this has been, uh, you know, a really uh, difficult time in her life in terms of the criticism and having to face down this stuff. What was her demeanour in the meeting? Well, there was one interesting part where another journalist, Conal O'Harter, who's covered this, you know, over over very, very many years, um, asked a question. It was a very specific question about, I think it was uh, death registers and their availability. And uh, she said, Mary Daly said, oh, here he is. He's got this bee in his bonnet, you know, and that sort of left people I could see in the chat function saying, you know, well, you, you shouldn't really, you know, he's just asking a question and you should be above answering those questions. And there was another part, you know, I could tell you that I thought that she was defensive or whatever, but I think her words actually speak really for herself. So when she was asked, um, you know, there was a specific question asked, should there have been a expert in trauma and memory uh, employed by the commission when dealing with uh, these women? And she said, I think basically we have done a job and let it stand. No one ever suggested this was going to be the last word on it. Maeve O'Rourke um, from the Clan Project, you have obviously been um, on this for a long time. Tell me, and you were in that meeting last night too, what is your reaction to what you heard? I'm still finding it difficult actually to find the words to describe all of the different emotions and reactions that, you know, I have myself, but that I'm also receiving from many people affected. Uh, It was really important, of course, that any member of the commission spoke publicly. So I think that was a real breakthrough. Um, The big thing that Professor Daly revealed which people have been asking about since the report was published, was details about the methodology. Because there was no chapter, no section in the Commission's report on methodology. And she did actually say, yes, we could have included a chapter on methodology. Um, And so that was key because, of course, people are wondering, how on earth did this Commission reach the findings, for example, that there is no evidence of forced adoption, There is no evidence that girls or women were forced to enter mother and baby homes by the church and state or state authorities. Girls and women were always free to leave and were not incarcerated. There was no forced labour because in mother and baby homes, what they did was generally work they would have had to do if they were living at home. Um, There's no evidence that girls or women were denied pain relief. There's no evidence of injury to the children involved in non-consensual vaccine trials. Criticisms of Tuzla regarding information and tracing are unfair and misplaced. And when babies died, when their mother was in the institution, it's possible that she knew the burial arrangements or would have been told if she had asked. And it's arguable no other family member is entitled to that information. So, I mean, the, we cannot overstate the importance and gravity of this report because the Taoiseach called it the definitive history when he apologised. And I mean, we have the situation as well with the Magdalene laundries. What exactly is the government apologising for if it's also standing over a report that says no abuse happened? And, you know, long after people are dead, this report will still be on the official record. And that, in my view, is unacceptable. Anyway, going back to yesterday, what Professor Daly revealed, I think, were two key things. 
First of all, as Jennifer said, the testimony of 550 people given to the Confidential Committee did not influence the Commission's findings. And on the one hand, Professor Daly said this is because it wasn't sworn and legally we could only, I think she, I suppose, implied we could only properly consider sworn evidence. But then she contradicted herself because she also accepted that had they spent hundreds of hours cross-checking and considering how to integrate it, they could have relied on it. And that actually is the correct legal interpretation because the terms of reference in the statutory instrument underpinning the Commission's work state um, the confidential committee shall produce a report of a general nature on the experiences of the single women and children, which the Commission may, to the extent it considers appropriate, rely upon to inform the investigations. So they did have the legal power to rely. Um, the second thing that she revealed was that it was only the alleged wrongdoers who received any evidence that the Commission was gathering, who received the opportunity to comment on it, and who actually received draft findings in order that they would have a right of reply. And this is where she was you know, also referring to the robust legal standards that had to be undertaken in order to guarantee fair procedures, because if they hadn't done that, of course, the legal teams could have taken them to the High Court. But the key point, from my perspective, that we were stating the Commission for years, is that the people directly affected also have the rights to fair procedures. They also are witnesses. They also had the right under Section 12 of the 2004 Commissions of Investigation Act to receive all evidence that was relevant to the evidence they would be giving. They also had the right under Section 34 of the 2004 Act, if they were identifiable, even if not named, uh, to receive a copy of draft findings, to have a right of reply. They have a constitutional right to their good name. They have a right to freedom of expression. They have a right to the truth in relation to human rights atrocities. And, you know, this isn't just idealistic principles. This is constitutional rights. And it is also the European Convention on Human Rights, which makes very clear when there are questions of state responsibility for death or questions of torture or other forms of cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment, the people directly affected have a basic right to participate in a state inquiry in the sense of being able to see and comment on the substance of the evidence coming in. So what we learned yesterday was that those rights were fully vindicated for all the alleged wrongdoers, and yet the people directly affected didn't even have a right to a transcript of what they had said to the Commission. They did not have the right to their own personal data or records of deceased or disappeared family members, and they certainly didn't have a right to know the evidence coming in from the religious or the state or to see any of those documents. Maeve, is a benign interpretation that they were just so much more worried about being sued by religious than they were about any comeback from from survivors? I mean, I, I, I'm careful in what I say here, but what's your interpretation of that? It has always been the case that there is a massive inequality of legal arms. The religious orders have the best, biggest legal firms in the state on retainer. And this commission did not provide legal assistance to the survivors. And that's why Claire McGettrick and I and Hogan Lovell is an international law firm based in London. We set up the Clan Project to give people free assistance to make a witness statement. Um, it's with the assistance of some of those witness statements that some people are currently taking judicial review proceedings in the High Court because they're actually able to say, like, this is the evidence I gave. I swore it. I never uh, was told of the findings that identify me or the bits that clearly identify me to my friends and family and the general public in the report. Um, and so it was important that we did that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, sure, this is, this is kind of defining of this issue as it continues to this day in relation, for example, to personal data. The state seems really concerned that it might be sued by, you know, the professionals involved in the separation of unmarried mothers and their children. So it redacts everything rather than being worried about being sued by survivors on the basis of their right to receive their personal data, um, particularly in instances where it's clear there was massive human rights violations, meaning that their personal data is actually what they need to hold anyone accountable. And like access to justice is the real issue here. The state is taking advantage and always has of the fact that it's very expensive 
to actually assert your rights in Ireland. It's very little legal aid. Uh, the cost rules in Ireland mean that if you sue the state or the church, they will usually come after you for the costs if you lose. And they'll write you letters from day one saying, drop this case now, because essentially you could lose your house. Maeve, I'm going to come on to Teresa O'Sullivan in a moment, but these women, these children, these babies were treated despicably. And it feels like that treatment, like in some ways, hasn't really changed, even though it's moved into more sort of administrative or legal sort of thing. The disregard and the neglect seems somehow to be carrying on, even at the very time when this should be about redress and about protecting and about um, making things right again, you know, giving people justice. Why are we just not putting the victims, survivors first in these cases? There's this incredibly patronising, condescending approach to people who were incarcerated and forcibly separated from their family by the state. There's all this talk about them being vulnerable and they're upset because the report was legalistic and we don't want to do anything legalistic in relation to them. I'm sorry, they have rights. And that is the problem the whole way along. People who were in poverty or abused and were ostracised from their community, were just picked up by the state and the church and treated as if literally they had no constitutional rights, no right to freedom from arbitrary detention, no right not to be forced into unpaid labour. I mean, we definitely still see the same attitude today in relation to people who are homeless, people who are asylum seekers, that, you know, when they have a need for care, that somehow justifies treating them without respect for their rights because... Now we're charitable, so you can't say anything we're doing is wrong because, well, they don't really deserve it anyway. They didn't have a right to it. So we're offering what, you know, like Leah Varadkar has said, well, no one's forcing anyone into direct provision. So like, it's your fault you need us and we'll choose what we do with you. You lose your rights when you ask the state to take care of you. I think really that's what's at the heart of it. It is profoundly depressing. Um, And Teresa O'Sullivan, I want to come on to you now. If you could briefly tell us a little bit about your own background, and then I'm so interested to hear your reaction to what happened yesterday with Professor Mary Daly. Well, I was born in the True Mother and Baby Home in 1957. And I suppose one of the key points uh, for today is that my mom, with the support of her family, they had arranged for her to go to England to have me in England. And again, that's a very poignant point in the sense that the services in England were better at the time and more open to a a mom having her little baby at that time. Uh, In her workplace, uh, when she was over there and she was just 16 to 17, uh, a person reported her um, to the Catholic uh, Irish um, Guild Association. And she was transferred immediately from uh, England to Ireland And I suppose one of the poignant things for today is that something that my mom had told me that she came back with a placement number of number 20 on an armband on her arm coming back in the boat. And I think it's very important for me to say this today because I was then the child of number 20. And there isn't an awful lot spoken about numbers, but it very, very much lends into the commission and what we were talking about today as well, because I'm feeling right now, I have a pain in my heart right now. And I have to be very, very um, sensitive to every survivor that's listening here this morning and that has listened and heard about what happened yesterday. Um, I suppose the key point with regard to my mom is that she had to do her 12 months in the tomb home and then she had to go. And then uh, she did come back for me several months, a few months afterwards. And they did not tell the truth. You know, they told my mom that I was on my way to America, which I wasn't. I um, was sent from Tum at at a year and 10 months to St. Patrick's Orphanage in Cork, where I was subsequently adopted um, via St. Anne's Adoption Society. And I did go to a most beautiful, lovely adopted family in West Cork. And and I'm so grateful for that. Um, I spent many years looking for her, many, many years, many doors closed. 
And I think by the time I got there, I, I was just worn out, as many, many survivors are, looking to know who they are, what, who's their identity, who's their family, where's my mom. And there was so, so much trauma going on. I met my mom in 1990. And she was an absolutely beautiful woman, you know. And one of the things I suppose for today is we didn't talk much about the trauma and her time in Shum. Because every time I went to ask the question, I could see the faraway look in her eyes. And I just knew there was so, so, so much more. And one poignant piece for today is on her deathbed, and she died in 2006, uh, about a week beforehand, she told me for the first time that there was an incident and she was a very, very quiet, reserved lady, but that she was severely beaten on one occasion and, and probably more occasions, but she was talking about that specific time. And I just felt that there was so much she wanted to say to me and never got to say it. And it was on her deathbed that she said it, like as if it was so uh, traumatizing on her mind that she still felt. And I suppose that's what I kind of feel for today and for everything that has happened yesterday. If my mom was shining a light down on that debate yesterday in the Oxford University, and looking on the many, many people that were speaking at that time and questions and key questions that were there, the question I'd be asking is, what would she say today? What would she say, do you think? I think myself, as Maeve had said and the other speakers, I'd be very, very passionate about one thing. There would be no commission only for survivors. Our testaments and our statements are sacred. And I couldn't emphasize that any stronger than I'm saying it. Everything that we have said and everything that has been said, there's, we always use this line, nothing about us without us. As far as I was concerned, when I went in to give my uh, statement to the commission, I was going in under safety, under confidentiality. I was going in to make a difference. Many, many survivors were going in with a huge amount of trauma in their hearts. They were speaking. They were so, so strong to go in there and put their stories out there and be so traumatized in doing so. We deserve the very, very best outcome. And as Maeve said, we should have got a draft. We should have got our transcripts. We should have got time to look over and see what we wanted included. In safety, there should be absolutely nothing for us to fear. We have feared long enough. We have done the time. We could even actually say we've done the time in the prison system. We've done our time. We now need to be safe. We're not worried about legal and legislation because we are assuming that our government, our society, our state is going to keep us safe. Because they owe it to us. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's so upsetting listening to you, and you've put it so eloquently, um, Trees, and, and I'm very grateful. Uh, Maeve alluded to it earlier, and I think Jen as well about Professor Mary Daly's uh, comment yesterday that to go with the two parts of the report, the um, inquisitorial part and the confidential, and to unpick all of those would have taken hundreds of more hours. What did you feel when you heard her say that? I could feel myself getting angry. I'm going to be very honest about it. But the first thing that came to my mind, there is no time limit on this. If you're doing something right, you do it right. And I'm very much thinking of the word human right right now as I'm speaking to you today. Absolutely, those hours should have been put in. Even if they had to reread it, that is the role of what this is all about. The commission is all about making things better, making things going down in history, being accurate in our storytelling and the accuracy of what happened in modern baby homes and indeed many, many other settings. The money was there, the finance was there, the academia was there, the intelligence and knowledge is there, 
We are very, very expert now in Ireland. We could turn around and say we didn't know in the 1950s, 60s, 70s and 80s. Let's go to the 90s and the 2000s. We are a very robust country. We are well able to give time. It is so, so important to give the hours and the time. So I'm afraid I don't accept it at all. It should have been given. It gave it would given it would have given a more robust and it would have given a more accurate a commission report and a fairness across the board. I felt like a second class citizen once again when I was hearing that yesterday. I said, here we go again. This has to be changed. Jen, just coming back to you in terms of reporting on this, presumably there'll be more out of this uh, meeting yesterday. And and Maeve, I'll come to you about what you would like to see happen now. But there's obviously more questions to be answered. So this is something that you'll be, I presume, following up or we'll be looking at and hearing from in the coming days. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think what we'll see in the immediate term this morning and this afternoon will be the Oireachtas Committee re-extending that invite out to the Commission members to ask them to come in um, now that they appear to have the time to do so. um, And now that there appears to be no, I suppose, legal constraints, you know, holding them back from doing that. Um, So I think we'll see that in the immediate term. And even I I noted that the Minister for Higher Education, Simon Harris, was on um, RT this morning and he was saying it would have been, I think his words that he used were useful and ever the diplomat, um, useful for for them to come come before that uh, committee. But that's only this morning sort of in terms of the news cycle. There's a bigger question um, beyond this about how the political system as a whole reacts to these really serious, um, outstanding questions. Because even if the commissioners come in before the committee and answer the questions, uh, the facts are still as they are. And, you know, you can get to the bottom of them a bit more and give people the answers they deserve. But clearly there is still such um, such hurt um, and so many outstanding questions and, and so many outstanding issues that people will want addressed. And the forum for that, I think, is still somewhat unknown. Um, and the political system, I think, owes, uh, has a duty of care to these women. Um, and just because the final report is published and just because this, you know, the, the there is this kind of um, news cycle at the moment in relation to what commissioners did or didn't say, uh, it doesn't mean that they can escape themselves addressing those those questions. And I think that is a, a political story that will go on for quite some time. And, you know, covering politics, there's always we always have this kind of, you know, let's take, for example, the COVID-19, the pandemic. There's always talk of how did the government handle the pandemic? How did the government handle the National Economic Recovery Plan? There is a question here about how the government handled this naturally. Um, it doesn't get as much attention. I think that's wrong. Um, and, you know, I would see this as being uh, obviously the short term issues, but a much longer term question um, as to how sensitively it's handled and how professionally it's handled uh, as well. Yeah, and just on that, um, was she asked at all why she hadn't spoken to the Oireachtas Committee or why nobody had and why she was suddenly speaking now? Did that come up at any point yesterday? Um, A number of journalists uh, asked her if she would appear before the committee and noted that she had already been asked, but those questions weren't put to her because, as you can understand, in in these Zooms, like much like yourself, kind of being the host, there's a, a moderator and a host and they pick out the questions. And I'm, yeah. you know, I'm not saying they deliberately didn't pick out the questions. Maybe they didn't see them. Having said that, you know, I know three journalists ask. I asked at the end as well. Um, and there was no no answer in relation to that. So she didn't actually specifically address why she didn't. She did mention at the very end, I think she said she was a graduate of the uh, uh, of Oxford University. And, you know, I don't know whether that played into her decision to make that the first place where she decided to, to speak amongst, like you said earlier, her peers. But um, I'm sure it's not the it won't be the last uh, won't be the last invitation she receives before the weekend anyway. I think you might be right there. Um, Maeve O'Rourke, you mentioned methodology at the beginning. I mean, I'm going to ask you what you think next steps need to happen. But it's fascinating to me that um, a chapter on methodology, which I don't, I'm very unacademic. I didn't even get a degree, so I can't say. But it seems to me, if you're doing a report, a, a description of how you did the report and why you made the decisions you did would be a very important part of that. So I wondered wh- why you think that chapter on methodology was left out. I just... I don't have the answer to that. Motine, it's it's um extremely difficult to understand. 
particularly given the number of academics working on this uh, commission and and also the very complex interaction that it had to undertake between historical analysis and law. So, you know, you really needed to know, like, what, what approaches are you taking to gathering the evidence but to evaluating it? Um, you know, the historians involved should have been, you know, explaining what they understood the value of oral history to be. There's a really important section in the more recent Northern Ireland academic report uh, doing a preliminary um, assessment of mother and baby and Magdalene institutions there, which which uh, draws on um, academic uh, theory in relation to, you know, what counts as uh, historical um, evidence. And it talks about, like, why would we rely on records more than testimony when we know that records are also produced in a particular context by a particular person and there's nothing to say that they are more objectively uh, accurate than somebody else's uh, recollections. So that was a really important part of the Northern Ireland report. You would have expected to see it in this one. Um, And then legally, they really should have been telling us, like, what what laws were they uh, testing the evidence against um, we, they told us the very last chapter uh, before they go into some other countries' issues is called human rights. And they say, we decided not to apply uh, constitutional or human rights frameworks um, and the government didn't require us to. But like the terms of reference didn't require them to investigate, you know, uh, did slavery, servitude or forced labour happen? Did arbitrary detention happen? Um, but nonetheless, the Commission is a public body subject to the 2003 European Convention on Human Rights Act, which requires public bodies to comply with the ECHR. And this was an investigation into questions of unlawful death and torture or ill treatment, as well as other very serious human rights violations. And therefore, they should have uh, been offering fair procedures, but also been examining, uh, you know, the actual elements of those human rights violations. There are actual established legal tests for what is arbitrary detention, for what is forced labour, and um, for what is unlawful death in the care of the state. And none of that was apparent and such a huge gap. And the shame is that there was 550 people, like uh, Teresa described, going in to give her a testimony, who gave all of that information, who provided so much evidence of exactly all of that stuff. And yet, for this legal reason, which, I mean, there was probably constraints, I'm sure there was, but it feels like the, the voices and the experience and the evidence, such important evidence, was left out. And you can only then speculate about why. Jen, you want to get in there? Sorry. Yeah, no, just on that point that you were making, very relevant to what you're saying, actually. Um, and uh, it, I tried to get as many words into my piece, a thousand words, but uh, this this I should have put in. Um, when we're talking about the experiences of women and what they told the confidential committee um, and all and anybody who reads that report, I mean, you know, it's absolutely harrowing. It's just so difficult to read. I mean, it really is. It really, really is. And during the online event yesterday, um, uh, Professor Mary Daly was, she kind of had these these three comments and she said, we used what we could. The strange thing, a lot of this evidence, um, the amount of time we spent listening to people, a lot of it was very moving and interesting, but an awful lot of it was about how I found my mother, how I didn't find my mother, how I found my child, how I didn't find my child. An awful lot of it was not particularly within our terms of reference. You got bits and pieces. One woman said it was like boarding school. We decided not to put that in the report because we thought people would go up in arms over it. They were actually very, they didn't say that much about it. We got descriptions of cleaning, other jobs. Nobody described really heavy work to us. I think what most of them talked about was the monotony of the place. But it just shows that the commission did not understand that separation of mother and child was just clearly not what they were focused on, even though that was the whole point of these institutions and the key harm that everybody was giving evidence about. And it does not feature in the recommendations for redress. There is no recommendation of redress relating to the separation, unlawful separation of mothers and children. It is beyond comprehension. The other really important thing I should have said is that the commission did not advertise the option 
of going to its investigative committee on its website. It only ever advertised the option of going to the confidential committee. So we were writing in August 2016 to the commission, uh, the solicitors, Hogan Lovells in London, saying a number of people in touch with us have appeared before the confidential committee and seem to have absolutely no idea about the difference between giving evidence to it or giving evidence to the main investigation committee. Having reviewed the commission's website, we note that the commission's rules and procedures, which identify the two ways of giving evidence, are not shown on the website. And there is no mention of being able to give direct evidence in person to the commission other than via the confidential committee. If further resources are required to enable you to gather more evidence through the investigation, we would suggest you bring this up in your next interim report to government. And the commission responded and said, the investigation committee will invite witnesses to give evidence. Not everybody who expresses an interest in giving evidence to the investigation committee will be invited for hearing. You note that our rules and procedures are not on our website. The commission has made a decision not to put this document on our website so as not to dissuade persons from applying to the confidential committee, which is of a more informal nature. 550 people went to the confidential committee, 19 went directly to the investigation and the committee invited another number that made it up to 64 people who gave oral evidence sworn. Imagine the difference. So Maeve, there's 11 million euro left. Should we have a new report? Do we need to scrap this and start again? What's what's What can happen? I mean, maybe that's not realistic, but it feels like there's so many questions and clearly survivors, and I, Teresa, I can hear it from you, are unhappy with how this has all gone down. What needs to happen next, Maeve? Well, I primarily defer, of course, to Teresa. So all of this is uh, in addition to what Teresa has to say about what really needs to happen next. I think we need to make sure that it doesn't do any further harm. So the first thing that needs to be ensured is that the proposed redress scheme that the government is bringing forward does not limit itself to the limitations of this report. So the government has been saying so far, oh, we're going to provide medical assistance to people who are in the institutions for more than six months. Um, or, you know, accepting the recommendation that women... So there's no recommendation for redress for separation from your child. There's a recommendation for a redress payment if you were a mother in an institution for more than six months. I don't understand why. And it's something related to institutionalisation. Um, and the government seems to have accepted that. And then there's a recommendation that nobody gets redress for anything that happened after 1973 because the government brought in a unmarried mother's allowance then. And so seemingly the fact that people were still in mother and baby homes is irrelevant. Um, so the government absolutely needs to make sure that its redress scheme is not based on this report. And then it needs to make sure that it does not force people to sign away their rights to other forms of accountability as a condition of getting into that scheme, because that is what it has done before. So the Magdalene scheme, the Ryan scheme, in fact, the redress board for industrial schools also told people then they could never speak of what they told the redress board and they also couldn't go to court Magdalene survivors were prevented from going to court and for limited payments in return. And what that meant was that nobody was able to actually get a judicial finding that legal wrongdoing happened. And the civil servants continue now to say in public and to the UN, when we go to the UN Human Rights Committees, there's never been a legal finding that the state is responsible for constitutional or human rights violations. Um, and, and their redress schemes at the same time are based on an ex gratia principle, meaning that we're giving this money as a gift, not in recognition of any wrongdoing. So the redress scheme is absolutely crucial. It needs to in no way uh, perpetuate the harm of this report. Then access to records. I mean, it is literally the thing that survivors and adopted people have been talking about for decades. And it is outrageous that this commission was allowed by those in power to operate so as to basically hoover up all the records and people can't access them. So people need access to their full personal data and all the administrative files of how these places were run and how the government interacted need to be made available in public because you need that evidence to go to court. You need that evidence to go to the police. The Garda Commissioner announced recently they are not investigating following receipt of the Mother and Baby Homes Commission report because everything in it is anonymised. And what he didn't mention, but is the reason he has no detail, is that the Commission of Investigation Act says that everything gathered by the Commission can never be used in civil or criminal proceedings. And yet the Gardaí have not done their own investigation. 
so people need access to the records so they can pressure the Gardaí to do their job. There have to be inquests. The government is bringing forward a bill that will exhume bodies from mother and baby home sites and at the same time as an agency is established to exhume bodies, the ordinary powers of the coroner will be disapplied, meaning that the bodies will be exhumed, identified hopefully, reinterred, and there will be no investigation into how they died, specifically how that person died or the circumstances in which they died, even though everybody in the state who dies in state care or in suspicious circumstances, their family has a right under existing law in Ireland to an inquiry by a coroner. And yet the government is about to disapply this in relation to mother and baby homes. So there are so many problems that need to be fixed by the government. And it starts with recognising that survivors and adopted people have equal rights, which have been egregiously uh, violated to date. Therese, I want to give the final word to you. I mean, I'm just wondering for you listening and and all that you've experienced and heard over decades, um, as Maeve has quite rightly pointed out, does it just feel to you sometimes like authorities, the government, whoever else, would just wish you, you guys would all just go away and stop talking and leave them alone and just let the bodies remain buried and let's not cause too much, let's not really find out what happened. And I just wonder what it feels like for you. Yes, well, for me personally, I suppose, even as I'm listening here today, that I I do have a pain in my heart right now. And I think that's very poignant in that it shows exactly what's happening at the minute. You know, it reflects two major things, really, is that we're still fighting. We're still fighting for our rights, for, for fighting for human rights, which is, as Maeve said, and I totally, totally support everything that Maeve has said, because she's got it spot on. And she's also in a, a situation as well that you're right, we do get tired. Of course, we get tired. Now, the most important thing is for today is that we're not giving up, though. And that's, I think, is the most, most important thing. I always think when I'm speaking on any kind of forum or giving a comment on anything, I always think of the survivor who may not have access to Facebook, who may not have access to computers, um, you know, technology and all of that as well. And they're sitting on their own at nighttime and they're there with their thoughts and they're thinking back on all the trauma that they have gone through. The most important thing for that is, the government, state bodies, and everybody that's working on our behalf are, as you say, sometimes against our behalf. I think you you have a very, very valid point when you say, of course, if we were all gone away, the problem would be gone away as well. Well, the bottom line of it is we're not going away. And there's a human dignity that has to be respected. And it's a very, very sacred place. And as Maeve mentioned, one very poignant point a while ago about, and there are so many I could mention, but one about the separation of a mom and her uh, little baby. And something that happens kind of after 1973, it's different. I can guarantee you the pain is still the very same. It's not about money at the end of the day. It's about recognition. It's, it's, it's about a total human respect that we seem to have lost a little bit along the way. And I so applaud all those public in particular who are fighting for us because we need it. We're tired. We have been fighting a long, long time. We will go on. We intend to do so. But we expect our constitution. We expect our government to respect us. That's what they're saying. They're talking about equality. They're talking about trying to go in some way to recognize the pain and trauma that people have gone through. If this was in any other country, I would honestly say we probably would be more sympathetic at times. We are one of the very fine countries in the world. Now we have to give all our time our resources, our respect to our own country here in Ireland. This is where we have to put our knowledge and expertise now. We're owed it. There's no other way to say it. They owe us. Theresa, I I don't know if Professor Mary Daly or the two other members of the commission are listening to this, but if they were, what would you want to say to them? I think they'd want to take a step back. That's what I'd say. I think they've done their 
work. They had a piece of work to do. And at times, I will say, I will commend the time and the work and the research and everything that they had done. And I certainly will respect that. I respect their profession. I I respect the work they had to do. But now we've got the next piece. Now we've got the real piece. I want them to set aside now their work and their thinking that they have been doing up to yesterday. And now I want them to do two things, to reflect with us, come to us, sit down with us, go to the Oireachtas, put the commission report on the table, speak to the survivors, go to the heart of us. They will be very, very pleasantly surprised, actually, at first of all, how articulate we were going to be, how we will be able to name it, how we are well able to speak on discussions, both legal and any other forum that they want us. We know our rights. We just need a chance to sit down with them. This is supposed to be a togetherness. This is supposed to be nothing about us without us. So the invitation that has been given to them, I would strongly be saying, take it up, come and meet us. That was Teresa O'Sullivan there. And we are so grateful to Teresa because we know that every time a survivor tells their story, it's traumatic and, you know, really they shouldn't have to. But they are all such brave and powerful women. And we're very grateful. Also very grateful, as always, to Maeve O'Rourke, who has dedicated so much of her professional and personal life to getting justice for all the women affected. It's such a labour of love and she uses all of her skills and knowledge and talents to that end. So we thank Maeve and also to Jennifer Bray, who is going to continue to report on this for the Irish Times in the coming days, weeks and months. Well, that's it for now. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Do get in touch on social at IT Women's Podcast on Facebook and Twitter or Instagram. And you can email us at thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.